Amen. Would you please remain standing for the reading of God's word? Our text this morning is from Malachi chapter 2. I'll read verses 3 through 9. These are the words of God. Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your solemn feasts, and one will take you away with it. Then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him, one of life and peace, and I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should, should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people, because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. These are the words of God. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you that we can open your word and that we can see how you have chosen to reveal yourself in it to us. But God, this requires that you open our eyes. And so I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see Christ in this passage and that you would grant us believing hearts, soft hearts, ready to be shaped by the preaching of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I'm picking up again as we, uh, to work through the book of Malachi. If you recall, just to, by way of review, a, a couple things. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and it's also the last prophetic word that God gives to his people before 400 or so years of silence until the coming of Christ. So this is the last word that God gives to his people for many, many years. Remember also that we've talked about how there are many chiasms throughout the book of Malachi. The whole book can be seen as a chiasm, uh, and we're sort of in the middle of it right now, or not at the center, but um, about partway through the first half of the book. And there are many chiasms within, the, uh, within those different sections. And the purpose of chiasms is uh, a, literary, it's a literary device that is used to draw a, the reader's attention to a particular point. That doesn't mean that it's the only point in the passage. Sometimes it's not even the only main point, if you, if you follow me. There may be multiple main points in a passage depending on um, how the preacher is coming to it, how the, uh, the reader of God's word is coming to it. But... What a chiasm does is a literary device to draw your attention to a particular point. In the passage that we're going to look at this morning, we have another chiasm, and so we'll walk through that in just a moment. But remember that Malachi opens his prophecy to Israel with the Lord's simple declaration, where God says, I have loved you. He says this to his people. And we find out a few verses later in chapter 1, that the main person or the main group that the Lord is interacting with are the priests, the priests of Israel. And the priests are, he's interacting with the priests of Israel, but as the representatives of all of Israel. So the Lord says to the priests, I have loved you. And the priests challenge God's claim. They say, in what way have you loved us? They challenge his claim, implying that they do not think that he does actually love them. 
This is again, again, the historical context of the book of Malachi. This is shortly after God has brought Israel out of captivity from Babylon. He's brought them back to Jerusalem. He's restored the the worship in the temple. They've rebuilt the temple. And right worship has been reestablished. And now we're seeing in the book of Malachi that that right worship has already begun to be corrupted. And because of that, in the context of that, the priests are saying, in what way have you loved us? God makes it very clear to them in the first couple of verses that his love for them is not because of who they are and it's not because of anything that they've done. In fact, they have acted in such a way that he has no pleasure in them. Chapter 1, verse 10. When we looked at that passage, we saw that that's actually the center of that chiasm in chapter 1. Verse 10. God says, I have no pleasure in you. And that comes as a stark contrast to the opening uh, opening. Uh, statement that God makes. He says, I have loved you, sort of the main emphasis in the first passage, and then in the second passage, he says, I have no pleasure in you. How do these things work together? Well, it's because of the way in which the priests have been bringing sacrifices to the Lord. God has no pleasure in them or in their corrupt sacrifices, their corrupt worship. In fact, not only that, not only does he not have pleasure in them, but at the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, the Lord says that because of their contempt for him, because of their contempt for him in their worship, he says that he is turning their blessings into curses. He says, I will turn your blessings into curses, and in fact, I have already begun to do so. Your blessings are being turned into curses. And so then in this next section, Verse, chapter 2, verses 3 through 9, God lays out the complete and utter failure of the Levites, of the priests. He's been leading up to this. He's been showing how they have corrupted the worship of God in different ways by the sacrifices that they bring. But now in this section, he really begins to bring the hammer down. And he demonstrates the complete failure of the Levites. They were supposed to walk with God. That's what the Levites were supposed to do. They were to walk with God. They were to turn others from iniquity by teaching the law and by conveying God's covenant of peace with his people. But this is what the priests have failed to do. And and then here is the, the, the main point of this passage, the center of this passage. This is what the priests have failed to do. And because we have the rest of the Bible, we have the New Testament, we know that this is what Christ accomplished. That's what this passage is about. This passage, chapter, Malachi chapter 2, verses 3 through 9, is about the utter failure of the Levitical priests, and because of that, the ultimate victory of Christ. So let's look at this passage in a little bit of detail here. Um, so again, to see the chiasm here, begin, let's begin with looking at verse 3 and verse 9. I have the chiasm laid out in your outline, so if you want to follow along that way, it might be helpful. In verse 3, the Lord says that he is going to rebuke their descendants. Uh, We'll talk about that in a moment, but there's some ambiguity there as to exactly what God means by that. But he's going to rebuke their descendants, and he's going to spread refuse on their faces. He is going to smear the faces of the priests with the refuse or the cast-off parts of of their sacrificial feasts. And then in verse 9, God says that he uh, is already, because of the way that the Levites have acted, that God is making them contemptible and base. 
So in verse, you, I think you can see the parallel there. Verse three, God's going to um, smear them with the junk and the cast off of their sacrificial feasts. And then in verse nine, he's going to make them contemptible. And in fact, he already has made them contemptible and base. So that's the outer, outer part of the chiasm here. Uh, in verse, verses four and verse eight, we see that God commands repentance to uh, Levi so that his covenant with Levi might continue. And, when, and here, when God speaks of having a covenant with Levi, he means having a covenant with the, with the tribe of Levi, with the Levitical priesthood. God commands repentance so that his covenant with Levi might continue. But in verse 8, we see that the priests have corrupted their covenant with Levi. You see the parallel there, the parallel language of this covenant with Levi. Uh, verse 5 and, ver- and the, first, or sorry, the second half of verse 7 comprise the parallel C sections. God had gave a covenant of life and peace with Levi. And because of this, and, and uh, both leading up to this and because of this, Levi feared God. He worshiped God rightly. He walked with God faithfully. And because of this, as, as one who had received a covenant of peace, he was to be a messenger to the people. He was to be one who carried this peace of the Lord to the people. That's in the second half of verse 7. This is the job of the priests. They are to be a messenger of the Lord of hosts. A messenger of what? A messenger of this covenant of peace from God to his people. And then moving in from there, we have uh, the first half of verse Six and the, sec- and the first half of verse 7, where, uh, I'll just read this because the, the parallels here are really wonderful. He says, the law of truth was in his mouth and injustice was not found on his lips. Okay, so law on his mouth and no injustice in his lips. And then the first half of verse 7, the lips of a priest should keep knowledge and, he sh- and people should seek the law from his mouth. Th- these go together. This is what Levi should have is the law in his mouth Injust, no injustice on his lips. And so because of that, the people should, um, should seek knowledge from him because he keeps knowledge on his lips and he, is, uh, and he teaches the law with his mouth. So you see the parallels there, even just the, um, the way that Malachi flips the terms. In the first part, it's lips and mouth. And then in the second, or sorry, it's mouth and lips. And the second part, it's lips and mouth. So he reverses the order just to show that, uh, that parallel. And then right in the center, we have uh, the second half of verse 6, where God says that Levi walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity. That's the center of this passage. That's the central point. This is what Levi was. This is what Levi used to be. There are obviously many other parallels and and, uh, connections throughout the passage. For instance, you could see the parallel in in that center point where um, the Lord says that Levi walked with me me in peace and equity. Equity would be um, equalness, uh, uh, justice, a right interpretation and application of the law. And then at the end of verse 9, God says part of his, his judgment is coming upon them because they have shown partiality in the law, because they have not been equitable with God's law. But really at the center, I think we have this statement of who Levi was. He was one, or the Levites, who the priests were. They were the ones that walked with God. They were the ones that knew his law, that were near God, and they turned many away from iniquity. And yet in this passage, God is demonstrating the ultimate failure 
and fall from that place of nearness to God, from that place of glory and responsibility and honor that the priests had. And so let's, let's walk through these different sections now um, and see how, they, how this all plays out. In the beginning of verse 3, as I mentioned, uh, there's a little bit of ambiguity here. It says, uh, I will rebuke your descendants. In the Hebrew, the word for rebuke there is, is uh, usually just rebuke or admonish, but sometimes it can imply a curse. And descendants, the word that's translated in the New King James, descendants, is the same word for seed. And that can apply to um, the seed being descendants or children, but it can also apply to agricultural seed. It can apply to grain. And so the question here is, and, and commentators uh, disagree or, or, or um, acknowledge the ambiguity of what exactly the Lord is referring to here. Does, is, is God referring to cursing or rebuking the descendants of the priests? Or is he talking about cursing and rebuking their um, farm labor, their agricultural work? Well, there's actually connections to both of these interpretations in uh, other parts of Malachi. You could look at um, chapter 2, verse 15, as another application of God talking about the descendants of the priests, what God desires. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 11, on the other hand, he says that he's going to rebuke the devourer. He's going to rebuke the locusts that were coming as to be a plague upon the people because of these curses of God. So God is going to rebuke those that are devouring the seed of Levi and, and in a physical, uh, literal uh, way, the, the seed of the ground. Um, and then again, you have other, uh, the theme of God's, of God's relationship to the descendants of these people is seen in chapter 4, where he talks about how he's going to send a prophet, the prophet Elijah, who's going to turn the hearts of the sons to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers to their sons. So in one sense, I think perhaps the ambiguity here, uh, we understand that Malachi is a poetic book in many respects. We've seen literary devices that Malachi uses. It's possible that Malachi here is intentionally ambiguous. It's possible here that he means that God is going to rebuke their seed, both in bringing a curse upon their descendants and also a curse upon their labor. And this fits with what God says are the blessings that he gives to his people when they follow him and worship him. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, um, if you want to turn there, will be uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 32 and 33, or you can just listen. This is a, a, where God is laying out um, both the blessings that will come upon Israel because of their obedience to him, following his law, keeping covenant with him, and also laying out a long litany of curses that will come, up, uh, come upon Israel when they disobey him, when they turn from him, when they break covenant with him. And so look at verses 32 and 33. It, this is in the section of the curses that come from disobedience. The Lord says, your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, and your eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all day long, and there should be no strength in your hand. God will take the blessing of children that he has given to Israel, and he will turn that into a curse upon them, because they will see their children taken away to another land, presumably also taken away into other forms of idolatry. They will see their own children turn from the Lord. So, again, we see this. If, if God is turning the blessings that he has given to the Levites into curses, 
Well, then we see that applied here when he says, I will rebuke your seed. But read the next verse in Deuteronomy 28 as well. A nation whom you have not known shall eat the fruit of your land and the produce of your labor, and you shall be, you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually. God is going to bring judgment not just upon the people of the land, but also on the land itself by refusing to give to Israel the fruit of the land. He's going to curse their seed. He's going to curse their grain. He's going to curse their, uh, the, the fruit of their labor. And so I think you can see that God, when God says, I'm going to turn your, curses into bless, or your blessings into curses, and I'm going to rebuke your seed, we can understand this in um, either or, or maybe both and, referring to the descendants of the priests, but also the, uh, the fruit of the land. Ultimately, the, the priest's contempt for God in their hearts and in their worship bears fruit, that their contempt bears fruit, then, on the fruit of, their, of the womb and on the fruit of their labor. Additionally, God um, makes it very clear that their contempt makes them contemptible. It is their contempt of God that makes the priests contemptible. God says he will take the offal or the refuse in, in the King James, uh, and maybe in some other versions, but in the King James Version, the word for refuse here is translated offal. And Ophal re- referred to um, generally the uh, contents of the gut. Sometimes, it, sometimes it's the undigested contents of the gut. Sometimes it's the digested contents of the gut. And that's what God is saying he's going to spread on their faces. This is the part of the, um, of the sacrifice that would be set aside when, they, when, they, when, you, when you kill an ox and you slaughter it to be sacrificed. The priest would cut it up. And they'd set the good parts on the altar, and they'd take um, the parts that were not to be sacrificed, they'd t- set them to the side, to then be taken out of the camp and burned, because it stank. Right? We're talking about the insides of the intestines. That's what God is going to take, and he's going to smear it on their faces. So much so, that they will be mistaken for the dung itself. Right? He, says, I will, he says, I will spread it on your faces, the, the refuse of your solemn feasts, of your sacrificial feasts, and one will take you away with it. You'll be carted out of the city as well, out of the camp as well, to be burned because you look like dung. Because that's what I'm smearing all over you. This is God speaking. <laughs> Yikes. But the reason for this is because of their contempt for God. And that parallels again with verse 9. Therefore, I have also made you contemptible and base because you have not walked in my ways. You have not kept my ways. Disobedience to God bears fruit. Disobedience to God bears fruit because God is not mocked. The priests, and I think it's also important to understand, or um, this highlights the, um, what God is saying here. Remember that the priests are those, they're supposed to be the clean ones. They're the holy ones in Israel. They're the ones that um, God sanctified so that they could be those representatives between God and his people. And so the first time we have this description of the sacrifices where the offal is to be taken out of the camp and burned is, is in reference to the consecration of Aaron and his sons. Aaron and his sons were consecrated by a sacrifice, 
and the ophal was taken out. Was, God gave very specific instructions that that was to be taken out of the camp and burned in this consecration of the Levites. These were the holy ones of God. They were to be set apart. They were a special tribe in Israel. And these are the ones that God is casting out. They have held God in contempt by bringing to him uh, false worship, by bringing to him worship that is unacceptable to him. They've not taught the people his way, and God will not be mocked. God turns hypocrisy on its head. And Malachi doesn't accuse the priests of worshiping false gods. He, do, he doesn't accuse them of idolatry. He accuses them of worshiping God falsely. He accuses them of worshiping God hypocritically by participating in the temple worship but bringing to God the things that were not good, the lame and the blind, the sick. Their offerings to God were repulsive to him. Malachi accuses the priests of worshiping God falsely and so the Lord turns their hypocrisy on them, on, back on them. He, he always turns hypocrisy on his head. Galatians, in Galatians 6, Paul says that you will reap what, you're, what you sow. God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. So that's the outer sections of this text, verse 3 and verse 9. When the priests are justly dishonored in this way, God says that they will know. So when these things happen, when I have done this to you, you will know that it is God who sent the command to repent. God's judgment upon them, when that actually happens, his discipline upon them, when it happens, is a sign to them that it's actually from God. The, the discipline is a sign to them that this is from God because it is a fulfillment of what he has said. God strips Levi of his honor, he says, so that he might continue his covenant with him. This is in verse 4. Then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you when these things have taken place so that my covenant with Levi would continue. Or in Hebrew, another way of translating this would be so that my covenant with Levi would be. Now my covenant with Levi would continue to exist. God is interested in keeping his covenant, keeping his promises. And so he's going to dishonor Levi He's going to bring, uh, make Levi contemptible because of their corruption of the covenant so that he might preserve his covenant. God strips Levi of honor so that he might continue covenant with him. And ultimately, we know, again, from the rest of the New Testament, that this is continued specifically in the great high priest, in Jesus, and through him then with all the saints. Um, in in the Old Testament, when God calls his people out of Egypt, he says to them in Exodus that you are a priestly nation. You are a special people, a priestly nation to me. And that was represented then in the special relationship that God had with the priests, with the Levites. But God is saying, I'm going to dishonor the Levites. And through them, I'm going to bring dishonor on Israel because of the way that they have refused to follow me and walk in my ways. When in the New Testament, when Jesus comes and he brings uh, salvation to the world and people place their trust in him, Peter writes to the churches in 1 Peter and, and says in chapter 2 that, the, that you, Gentiles, those of you who believe in Christ, you are a priestly nation. You're a holy people. You're a special people set apart by God. 
He uses the same language that God used of Israel for all of us, for all of us that place our trust in Christ. He uses the same language um, of us that he used of the priests. We are all considered priests. This is why over and over in the, in the New Testament, um, Paul and Peter and others will address the churches as saints. Saints does, is, not, is not a term to describe power Christians. It's a term to describe the people that are holy. The people that have been set apart by God, by the work of Christ. You are a saint. Every one of you in this room, if you place your, your trust in Christ, then you are considered a saint. You're not considered a saint because you did a lot of really good things and people recognized you for it. You're a saint because you believe in Jesus. That's what makes you a saint. Well, this kind of set-apartness that God has given to Levi, he's saying he's, bringing, he's going to bring dishonor upon that. There's dishonor upon them because they have rejected him. We know that, this is, that he continues this covenant, though, in Christ and in Christ then with us. God had chosen, uh, I think this also raises a question because you can look at the Old Testament through the, the books of uh, Moses and it's not clear that God ever sets a really specific covenant with the tribe of Levi. It, do, it doesn't stand out at first. We might wonder, what is God talking about? We're familiar, maybe, with talking about the covenants with Abraham, the, the covenant that God made with Noah, the covenant that God made with David, but we're not so familiar with any covenant that God made with Levi. And so we should do a little bit of Old Testament history. God had chosen the Levites as a substitute for all the firstborn males of Israel. He describes this in Numbers chapter 3. When God, remember when Israel is in Egypt, God sends the 10th plague. And the 10th plague was a judgment upon the firstborn of Egypt. And God spared the firstborn of Israel because they were under the blood of the lamb. And then when he calls them out out of Egypt... God says, because I spared the firstborn, the firstborn are considered mine. Because I've spared them, they're considered consecrated to me. But instead of taking the firstborn from all of the tribes, God said, I will instead take the tribe of Levi as a representative of all of the firstborn of the other tribes. And so the Levites were set apart as a, as a separate consecrated tribe to represent all of Israel. That's, that's why Levi represents Israel is because of what happened at Passover. The firstborn were spared, and then God said, I will take, instead of taking the firstborn from all of the tribes, I will take the tribe of Levi as my special tribe to, be, to serve in the tabernacle. Um, and, and so this begs another question. Why did God choose Levi? Why did God choose Levi? Why did God not choose Judah or any of the other tribes? We're not told explicitly, but there's one uh, good reason to uh, suspect this. When Israel was, on, was at Mount Sinai and Moses goes up into the mountain and he receives the Ten Commandments from God. He comes back down and what does he see? He sees all the people worshiping this golden calf. Moses is enraged. He breaks the tablets of stone and he asks the people, who is on the Lord's side? And it's the Levites that join Moses. It's the Levites that come and stand with Moses. And so Moses gives them the authority then to go and actually kill those who were worshiping this false god. 3,000, we're told, were killed in that day. But it's the Levites who remain faithful to God in the midst of that. And so presumably, that, that seems to, um, it seems to be related to the fact that God then, cho- after that, chooses Levi to be his special tribe that represents the people. Because Levi was zealous for God. 
And so this then is their calling. They were to be zealous for God, to teach, God, to teach the people their, uh, the ways of God. And in fact, not only that, but Levi, when they all go into the land of Canaan, if you read the second half of the book of Joshua, the, the land of Canaan is split up into a bunch of different regions for the different tribes. But the tribe of Levi doesn't get a special region. They don't get their own part of the land. Rather, they get individual cities spread out through all of the tribes. Well, why is this? It's because they are to be representatives of the people. They're to be with the people. And God, uh, when Jacob or when Moses blesses the tribes as they're about to go into the land, he says of Levi that Levi is to teach the people the ways of God. He's to lead them in worshiping God. And so the Levites were to live among the people. They were to teach the people God's law. And so in, in, uh, with all of this together, we can, uh, we can see and under, understand what God says when he, when he says, or what he means when he says, I've made a covenant of life and peace with Levi. I've chosen them to be separate from the tribes. I've chosen them to be my messengers to the people. I've chosen them to, to have a particular peace with me. He has set them apart. He has consecrated them. And he did this partially because they rightly feared God and they were zealous for him. They were zealous to see God's righteousness applied among the people. Um, another example of this is Phineas the priest in Numbers chapter 25. In, in Numbers 25, we have the people of Israel going and, and beginning to be, they're drawn away by the Midianites. Um, a bunch of Midianite women come and they, uh, they tempt Israel. And this, is all, this is actually all part of a, a coup that was planned by the Midianites to try to, um, to try to weaken Israel. But they come and they tempt and draw away the men of Israel and included, it's not just a sexual temptation, but also a temptation to go and worship the gods of Midian. And the people do this and a great plague comes upon Israel, actually. A great plague, the people are getting sick and it is Phinehas, the son of the high priest, who stands up and actually kills a couple that is um, fornicating in, the tab or in front of the tabernacle. And he gets up and he, he runs a spear through the two of them because he's zealous for God and he will not, he will not have this um, abomination happen in God's house. And after this happens, God says to uh, Phineas that I will establish a covenant of peace with him. I will establish a covenant, an everlasting covenant of peace with Phineas, this Levite. Phineas is the grandson of Aaron, the high priest. He's going to establish a covenant of peace with him. Why? Because he was zealous for God. He was zealous with the same zeal that God has, the same hunger and desire for righteousness. These are the Levites. This is the priestly tribe. They, they were the teachers of the law. They were the ones that were directing Israel, teaching them how to worship God, teaching them to worship God, not just with their actions, but with their hearts, to have that kind of zeal for God. And because of this, they had peace with God. The Levites were to have peace with God. And if they have peace with God, then they can go and be messengers of that peace to others. But the priests in Malachi's day, and we see this um, wonderful and awful turn in verse 8. God has described what the priests were like. This is what Levi used to be like. You used to walk with me. You used to be zealous for me. You used to be like Phineas and like the Levites at Mount Sinai. You used to teach the people faithfully. Verse 8, but you have departed from the way. 
The priests in Malachi's day left the ways of God and they had corrupted the covenant that he had with them. Instead of leading the rest of Israel in righteousness, in righteousness and to the blessings that come from obedience, they were causing the people instead to sin. They, were, they weren't leading Israel in righteousness. They were actually leading them in this hypocrisy, leading them in this sin. Malachi shows that in, the, in chapter 1, the reason that God is saying, I don't have any pleasure in you, is because the priests are offering these um, unfit sacrifices, right? The blind and the lame and the sick. Well, who brings those sacrifices to the priest? It's the people. The people bring the animals to be sacrificed, and the priests are then sacrificing these unfit sacrifices. Well, why did the people think that that was okay? It's not as though the Levites were, I'm just doing my job, God. I'm just sacrificing what the people bring me. No, the Levites are responsible to teach the people. They're responsible to teach them and lead them in what it means to faithfully worship God. But they were failing. They were refusing to do so. In, in doing so, they were leading people to sin. They were leading the people in their sin. I think this is very similar to uh, the, um, or we have echoes of this in Matthew 23, when Jesus pronounces woes upon the Pharisees. He gives these strong rebukes and promises of God's judgment upon the Pharisees. The Pharisees were, were this sect of the people that were z- supposedly zealous for God, zealous for following him. Um, some people think that the first Pharisee was Ezra, the priest, or Ezra, the scribe, the one who comes back from Babylon with the people and leads this great reformation of God's law. Ezra was a faithful man, a wonderful follower of, of Jehovah God. He's considered by some to be the first Pharisee. And the Pharisees in Jesus' day, though, are very similar to the priests that Malachi is speaking to. They, they are... Um, putting on this show of worshiping God, this show of righteousness, but it's hypocrisy. They're not following God in their hearts. They're selfish. They're bringing faulty sacrifices to the Lord. They're doing it for their own gain. And because of these things, God has no pleasure in them. God has no pleasure in them. And this leads to another general principle here. A priest can only pronounce truly the peace of God to the people if he has peace with God himself first. And this is an incredible um, warning and indictment, first and foremost, upon pastors and elders. As pastors and elders, we cannot proclaim the gospel to you faithfully, the, the covenant of peace that God has with you because of Jesus, if we first do not have that covenant of peace with him. And we see that in the church, broadly speaking. Why is it that our nation, that the churches of our nation are not zealous for the law of God? Why is it that our nation is full of churches that are not interested in dealing with sin? It's because the pastors and the elders aren't. It's because the pastors and elders that represent America that in one sense represent the people to God and God bring God's word to his people, they are not interested in following God. They are not interested in keeping his ways, in keeping that covenant of peace with God and shame on us. 
And so this is an incidental application. This is why as a church, as the people of God, you ought to be praying for your, your pastors and your elders because we need to be held accountable. We need to be held accountable to God's word and not to our own inclinations, not what we think about things. Pray for your pastors and your elders. A priest cannot pronounce the peace of God if he does not have it himself first. You cannot give what you do not have. And this is a, a wonderful application for any and all of you who are in teaching positions in any number of uh, relationships. If you are a, a father or a mother and you want to um, teach your children, you, you want your children to have peace with God, then you need to have peace with God. If you want your children, and what does peace with God mean? Peace with God means sin being dealt with. Sin being confessed, not hiding it, not holding on to it, not, not saying that your ways are better than God's ways. If you want the people around you to have peace with God, and you should, that will only happen, as far as it concerns you, if you first have peace with God. Husbands, do you want your wife to have peace with God? Well, then you must have peace with God. And that means you taking responsibility for your sin, for the sins of your household. And wives, do you want your husbands to have peace with God? We, we are, to, as husbands and wives, um, uh, we, we have a relationship that is, a, a, in a unique way, this give and take. And we encourage one another and, and build one another up in seeking the Lord. But your husband's not going to have peace with God if you don't have peace with God, as far as it concerns you. And again, peace with God comes from confessing your sins, dealing with your own sins, taking responsibility for your words, your thoughts, your actions, the things you have done that you should not do, and the things you have not done that you should do. You cannot give what you don't have. We as a church will not be able to be messengers of the gospel of peace to the greater Seattle area if we first do not have that peace with God. This is why it is so important for you to come here every Lord's Day to get on your knees as a church and confess our sins. This is why we do this week after week after week. This is why you ought to, on your own, in your home, in your own personal time, uh, reading your Bible, uh, your prayer time, you ought to be confessing your sins to the Lord because you want the gospel to go out to your neighbors. You want the gospel to go out to Seattle. You want the gospel to go to Olympia. Don't you? It won't happen if we are not confessing our sins first because you can't give what you don't have. You can't give peace if you first don't have it. This is man's fundamental problem. And Malachi highlights this in this passage. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the people that were closest to Jehovah God. He's not just talking to all of Israel, which was a special nation chosen out from among all the other nations. He's not talking to all of Israel directly. He's talking to that special tribe that was chosen out of the special nation. Those who were closest to God, who served in the tabernacle and in the temple. And he's telling them that they don't have peace with God. If there's no peace with God in Israel, where is it? Even the priests are not able to achieve it. 
And so in the center then of this passage, God reminds the priests what their faithfulness had been like. He reminds them of how they had walked with God. The priests were to teach the people God's law. They were to guard and to keep it so that the people could come and seek it from them, the messengers of God. If the people want to follow God, they need to know how. And so they would go to the Levites. They would go to the priests because they were the ones who kept the law of God, who preserved it, who taught it. Levi used to walk with God in peace and equity, and he led the people away from iniquity. This is, again, the center of the chiasm. And as the center of the chiasm, it holds in high relief the utter failure of the Levites. And because of this, it also points to Christ, because it states exactly what Jesus accomplished. Read this passage again, and, and think, who does this sound like? Second half of verse six. He walked with me in peace and equity. And he turned many away from iniquity. Who does that? It's Jesus. Jesus walks with God in peace perfectly. Jesus walks with God perfectly applying his law. Equitably applying it. Equitably, equitably applying it to himself. Jesus walked with God. As a man, he walked perfectly according to the law. And who is it that turns many away from iniquity other than Jesus? Who turns people away from iniquity other than Jesus? So I hope you see that I think this is so important to see. This is the last book of the Old Testament. It's God's last prophetic word to his people. And he's telling them, <laughs> he's telling them, you suck. You suck at being my people. That's, God's actually using stronger language than that. Right? But no, that, this is what God's people are hearing. They're hearing, you don't follow me. I'm displeased with you. Not only am I displeased with you, I have no pleasure in you. You disgust me. You disgust me so much, I'm gonna, it would be better if I spread dung on your face and you were taken out of the camp and burned. That's how much you disgust me. And then in the center of this section, he says, but you need a priest. You need a priest that would walk with me in peace. You need a priest that would walk with me in equity. You need someone to turn you from your iniquity. And later on in Malachi, he identifies that there is a messenger that is going to come. He's going to come to the temple and he's going to set things right. God is going to pour out blessings upon his people because of this one to come. Our situation, apart from Christ, really is dire. And, and I don't think we consider that often enough. God's people are to be holy because he is holy. God, God's people are to be holy. You are to live a holy life as a Christian. 
You are to live a holy life in your mind, in your body, in your words. You're to live a holy life in your relationships, in your sexual lives, in the books that you read, in the music that you listen to. And this is, I'm not talking about um, sort of a, an arbitrary, um, uh, making arbitrary rules about what is clean and unclean. But are you giving your whole self as a sacrifice to God? Because that's what you are as his people. You are sacrifices to God. Are you presenting yourself as a pure, unblemished sacrifice? Or are you presenting yourself as a lame, blind, sick sacrifice and saying, well, God, that's the best I could do. But I'll still come to church. I might be a wreck the rest of the week, but at least I'll come to church. Man was created in God's image, and therefore man was created with an image of holiness. And it is our sin that has marred that image of holiness. Our sin makes us unacceptable before a holy God. Our sin, your sin, makes you unacceptable before a holy God. And your sin, if accompanied by hypocrisy, makes you repugnant before a holy God. What did God do with the Levites? He smears dung on them and casts them out because of their hypocrisy. In order to be reunited with God then, with this holy God, man must be renewed. Man must be remade. The Levites, though they made a show of holiness in their worship, they were utterly unholy and incapable of leading the people in holiness because they did not take God's law to heart. And apart from God's grace, all men, just like the Levites, hold God in contempt. We're not satisfied with his ways. We prefer our sinful passions. And so then even our shows of holiness, if not in true fear, in true worship of God, in Christ, through Christ, then our show of holiness is just dumb. And so we need the true priest who lived perfectly, who substituted himself for us, who offered a perfect sacrifice once for all, because we can't. You can't live a holy life. It's not just that you don't. It isn't just that you don't. It's that you can't. And that's why Christ died. We need this true priest who lived perfectly, who substituted himself for us, who offered a perfect sacrifice once for all, and who gives us his righteousness. It's not just that God, or that Jesus took our sins, it's that he also gave us his righteousness so that we might have peace with God. Do you want peace with God? Do you want peace with God? Do you want to be near God truly? Not near God in a hypocritical sense. Do you want to really know God? It comes from having peace with God. You can't be near God or know God apart from peace with him. And that peace is impossible where there's sin. So what do we do? How, how do we deal with that? We're sinners and we can't help it. And so we appeal to the blood of Jesus. We need Jesus Christ. 
He walked with God in peace and in equity, and it is he who turns many away from iniquity. And, this, and the order here is, is important. You are an iniquitous person, apart from the blood of Jesus. But in Jesus, not only does he pay for your sins, not only does he give you his righteousness, but he teaches you. He is that high priest. He is that perfect Levite. He teaches you how to walk with God. Not only does he take away your sin, but he teaches you how not to. You can live a holy life. I said earlier, you're, it's, you're unable to live a holy life. And I mean it. And at the same time, you are able to live a holy life. But only by the grace of Christ, through him sanctifying you, through you learning to confess your sins. To take responsibility for what you've done. And the grace of God is that it covers all of it. We can't come near God. We can't approach him apart from this blood of Christ. Even though the priests served near God, they were ultimately far from him. They were unholy. They were cast out. And that's why Malachi, this last prophet of the Old Testament, points ahead to the messenger of the covenant who would come. He says this in, chapter, in the beginning of chapter 3. The messenger of the covenant who's going to come to be that perfect priest for you. To stand in your place, to teach you righteousness, and to convey to you the peace of God. And in him we do have this peace. In Jesus we have life with God. In Jesus we can draw near to this holy creator. But it's only in Christ. But if we do so... If we place our trust in Christ, if you profess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, you believe that God raised him from the dead, and then you follow him. And God says he saves you. And that doesn't just mean you'll be okay in the end. It means that you hear God's words when he says, I have loved you. And if you're following Christ, then you know that those words are true. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, you are holy. And we know that apart from your grace, we are not. God, help us to see this. We need to see our sin. We need to know how unholy, how unacceptable we are before you. So that then we can cling fast to Jesus, who is our holiness. God, help us to apply this truth, to, to understand and apply this need for the true high priest to our lives, even this week in front of us. In Jesus' name, amen.